Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. Our text this morning is going to come from Ephesians, the sixth chapter, if you'd like to go ahead and uh, turn there. <clears throat> I think it's probably a, a very familiar passage. Here Paul describes what he calls the, the whole armor of God. And so let's uh, read there in Ephesians 6, and we'll begin with verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. <clears throat> Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. <clears throat> stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. <clears throat> as Paul ends his letter here to the Ephesians, <clears throat> his concern is that those Christians need to be strong. Now, why was that? Why was he so concerned about them being strong? Well, to put it bluntly, because we are at war. Now, this, is, of course, is not a physical war. This war cannot be won with uh, muscles or with tactical skills or with material weapons. In fact, as humans, we don't really stand a chance alone because our enemy is not human, not flesh and blood, as Paul puts it. Our fight is spiritual in nature, and it's against wicked spiritual beings. As Paul describes in verse 12, we are against evil forces led by Satan. <clears throat> Paul would further describe this war in 2 Corinthians 10, verse, verses 3 and 4. He said there, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Thankfully, we are not left to defend ourselves. There is strength and power available to us as Christians beyond our own strength and power. Note there that in the text, Paul says to be strong in the Lord, not in yourselves, but in the Lord, and in the power of His might. And in the verses we read from 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to divine power, which is obviously not power that we ourselves hold. I read the other day about a, a police officer who was patrolling in Los Angeles several years ago, and uh a pickup truck came speeding through a stop sign, and so the officer turned on his siren and, and followed. And when the pickup pulled over, the officer approached the driver's door to, to ask for his ID. What the policeman did not know, though, was that this driver had just robbed a convenience store and had a sack of money, uh, stolen money, on the seat beside him. And no sooner had the officer approached and said, Good morning, sir. May I see your... Then the driver pulled his gun 
and fired into the policeman's chest from just four inches away. The force of the blast pushed the officer back seven feet where he fell to the ground. And the driver uh, got ready to, to speed away. But before he could, the officer stood up and pulled his gun, fired twice. The first bullet went through the, the open window and, and smashed the windshield. And the second tore through the door and ripped into the driver's leg. And the driver panicked and screamed, don't shoot, threw his gun, threw the money out the pickup window. And he was placed under arrest. Now, certainly this driver assumed that the officer was dead. And we're probably wondering, how did that officer survive a shot to the chest from such a close range? Well, he was wearing a bulletproof vest. It was only three-eighths of an inch thick, but it was strong enough to stop a bullet. And that's the kind of protection that we need against our enemy. In our text, Paul uses the imagery of a soldier's armor to describe the strength and the protection that's made available to us through Christ. Paul's readers uh, surely would have understood this, this metaphor, this whole armor, to refer to the Roman soldier, the fully armored legionnaire that Rome used to conquer other nations. In the same way that these soldiers were fully armed and fully covered, Paul says that Christians should be fully covered with God's armor. He begins with uh, the belt of truth. Now, in the Roman armor, I understand this would be more like a, a girdle. It would protect uh, the midsection of the body as well as hold everything else in place. And so it is with truth. It holds our life together with a, a sense of purpose, a sense of direction. It's our first line of defense, uh, defense against Satan's main weapon, which is lies. Jesus said in John 8 and 44, speaking of the devil, that there is no truth in him, for he is the father of lies. And of course, the source of absolute truth, the opposite of lies, is, is God's word. And so we need the, the belt of truth to, to fight against Satan's lies. Next, Paul adds the, the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate would protect the body from the neck down to the midsection. Uh, righteousness is simply doing what God considers right. And just like a belt or a girdle would be little protection without a breastplate, knowledge of God's truth, having that belt of truth, is of little value to us if we don't put it into practice. And that's what righteousness is, doing what is good, doing what is right in God's sight. Just like a breastplate that will guard our hearts, while on the other hand, ungodly living will scar us with guilt. Next, Paul says that on our feet should be strapped the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I think this carries with it the idea of always being ready. You know, a soldier could not possibly say he was ready for battle at a moment's notice if he didn't have his shoes on. And so it is with a Christian. We must be ready at all times to face our enemy with firm-footed stability and familiarity with the gospel. We also need to take up the shield of faith, that is, having a strong conviction and trust in God and in His promises. We'll come back to this one in just a moment. Paul also says that we must wear the helmet of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, our hope of eternal life, 
gives us assurance, gives us confidence of winning the final victory. And this helmet will protect our minds from doubt and discouragement that um, Satan might uh, tempt us with during battle. Most, if not all, of these pieces of the armor have been defensive ones so far, but Paul adds a final piece which can serve both as a defense and also as an offensive weapon. That is the sword of the Spirit, which he says is God's Word. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says that this sword is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus gave us a perfect example, a perfect demonstration of how this sword can be used. Uh, we know that in his temptation by Satan, he effectively used and quoted the word of God to overcome Satan's temptations. And then finally, Paul urges these Christians not to forget the power of prayer by which we remain watchful. Just like a good soldier realizes the importance of maintaining contact with his commanding officer, our communication with God is, is certainly vitally, vitally important. In fact, you could argue that prayer is also a part of this Christian armor. In fact, it's both defensive as well as offensive. Our prayers uh, are powerful. Our prayers should not only be for our own protection, but also for the spiritual well-being of our fellow soldiers. Specifically, Paul here asked these brethren to pray for him, to pray for his preaching, that he might know what words to say, that, that they might be effective. And so certainly uh, prayer can be um, a powerful defense as well as a powerful weapon. Well, obviously we could devote a, a whole study. In fact, we could uh, devote individual studies to each of these uh, pieces of armor. But this morning I want to focus on, on one of them in particular, and that is the description that Paul gives for the shield of faith. With this shield, Paul says that we can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so let's take a closer look at this analogy. As we said, when Paul's audience read and heard this letter, and when they got to these verses that describe the whole armor of God, surely their minds would have gone to the armor of the Roman soldier. And in particular, the Roman shield was a very impressive piece of, of protection, perhaps like, unlike that of, of any other empire. You know, when we think of a shield, we, we probably think of something that's small, maybe it's round, or that previous slide you saw a little, I don't know what you call that shape. But, but the Roman shield actually um, was, was more like a door. It was large. It was rectangular. Um, it was meant to, made to protect the soldier's entire body, um, in fact, according to Strong's, the Greek word for shield used here is derived from the Greek word for door. Those words are, are almost synonymous. It was made of, of layers of plywood or tough leather, and it would be soaked in water before a battle in order to not only deflect these flaming arrows, but, but even to be able to extinguish them. Another unique feature of the, the Roman shield um, is that it was designed in a way that it could, could interlock with other soldiers' shields. And in this way, they could 
uh, march in a, a unit, if you will. They could proceed forward almost like a, a wall of protection. In Latin, it was called the testudo formation. And that literally translates to tortoise, like a turtle. Because as the soldiers, again, aligned themselves and, and walked forward with these interlocked shields, they were protected in every direction. There would be uh, shields in the front. Some would hold their shields over the top, some over the side, some in the back if necessary. And again, they would be protected on, on every side, much like a, a turtle. One Roman historian claimed that this tortoise formation was so strong, so tight, so resilient, that it was able to withstand the weight of a horse walking on top of the shields. And I think this idea of, of these shields working together to protect the whole battalion, if you will, I think that makes Paul's analogy even more meaningful. Not only is our own, our personal shield of faith meant to protect us as individuals from Satan's attacks, but when we unite, when we work together, we are a wall of protection for each other. I think that's a beautiful and certainly a powerful picture. Well, back to these flaming arrows or, or fiery darts, as the King James Version calls them. What's that all about? Well, back in Paul's day, enemies would dip the ends of their arrows or perhaps wrap the ends of the arrows in something covered in pitch or, or some other flammable substance. And then they would light them on fire just before they shot them. And not only did this make for a terrifying and obviously a deadly weapon to any person that it might hit, but it also served to cripple the, the targeted army by destroying their shelters and their chariots and their tents and what have you. And Paul likens this destructive military tactic to the ways in which Satan attacks us as Christians. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to expand on this, this metaphor that Paul introduces. As we've already stated, we too are at war. And to win a war, we need to be aware of our enemy's strategies and his methods of attack. In other words, what might these flaming arrows represent in our Christian life? What are some of the fiery darts that Satan aims at us? The first that I want to notice with you is one that we've already mentioned. It's a weapon that the devil is very skilled at using because he basically invented it, and that is lies or false doctrine. As we referenced earlier, Jesus said that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, verse 44. No one's ever been better at lying than Satan. Again, Jesus says, from his own resources, meaning that he invented them, if you will. He's the father of lies. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, the devil used this fiery dart to convince Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. When she told him that God had said that they could not eat of it or they would die, Satan's response was, and I suppose this is the first lie ever recorded, Satan's response was, you will not surely die, Genesis 3 and verse 4. And he's been using lies ever since by misrepresenting God's truth and replacing it with lies and false doctrine. Speaking of Satan, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But you know, it's not only unbelievers who Satan has lied to and, and blinded. Listen to this scary warning found in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now the Spirit express, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now that's assuming that they were once in the faith. In other words, they were believers. But they will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Satan uses lies to convince believers to depart from the faith. And that's why it's so important that we take up the shield of faith to deflect the flaming arrows of false doctrine. Because as Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 and 17. So we need God's Word to deflect false doctrine. Another fiery dart that Satan aims at us is temptation. Now I suppose that he fired that arrow at, at Eve as well. Genesis 3 and verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. As I said, I'm sure that Satan put these ideas, these temptations into uh, her mind or into her eyes. Notice the, the three-part temptation there. 1 John 2 and verse 16 tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. World there isn't talking about the earth. It's talking about Satan. It's talking about um, the forces of, of this world. Satan used these exact same temptations on Eve. When she saw that the uh, fruit was good for food, lust of the flesh. When she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, obviously lust of the eyes. And when she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, pride of life. And Satan continues to use these same tactics, these same temptations on us today. Once again, thankfully, Jesus left us a, a perfect example of, of how to resist these temptations. Because I believe that the devil tried to use these same tactics on Jesus, this same fiery dart, if you will. In Luke, the fourth chapter, after Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, so certainly he must have been hungry, the devil said to him, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Lust of the flesh. And then he took Jesus up on a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, worship me and all this will be yours. Lust of the eyes. And then finally, the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said, if, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And he even quoted scripture from Psalm 91, which speaks of being lifted up by angels. In other words, Satan tried to appeal to Jesus's pride by challenging him to prove that he was the son of God. But each time Jesus deflected Satan's arrows with the shield of faith, with God's Word. And that's exactly what we must do as well. well. When we think about temptation, what probably comes to mind is the enticement to commit sins, uh, such as sins of the flesh. We are tempted to commit things such as adultery or fornication or uh, wrath, drunkenness, and the such like. 
and most of us probably feel pretty good about not giving in to those sins, but there's another category, if you will, of temptation that I think we all give into from time to time. And I'm going to kind of put it under one umbrella and call it the fiery dart of selfishness. Now, there are many ways, different ways, which this dart can manifest itself, and, and certainly we need to recognize them all as, as fiery darts of Satan. We name just a few. Envy, covetousness, jealousy, greed, vanity, pride. All of these can be boiled down to the sin of putting ourselves first. The Bible, however, teaches us to put others first. Jesus taught that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's will be. And in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he instructed, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Unforgiveness and anger can also fall into this category of selfishness. When we refuse to forgive others, we are focusing on ourselves. To forgive is to be like Jesus, but to refuse to forgive is, is to align ourselves with Satan instead of Jesus. When we hold on to an offense, we are playing into the devil's hand. We're, we're putting our rights, our right to feel hurt, our right to feel offended above Jesus' command to forgive. And these harbored feelings lead to anger. And even though Paul told the Ephesian believers to be angry without sinning, Ephesians 4, 26, unfortunately, anger, most often we, we nurse it, if you will, until it leads to sin. We harbor the anger until it comes out in bitterness, hatred, or even worse. I mentioned that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor. Jesus said the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And really, when we do that, everything else will fall into place. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. The point is, as long as we're putting God's will before our own, as long as we're not being selfish, we won't be harmed by these flaming arrows of selfishness. Now, that certainly contradicts much of what the world promotes today. You may have seen the uh, T-shirts by uh, the Life is Good company that say, do what you love and love what you do. Now, don't get me wrong. I like this company. I have one of the T-shirts myself, not this particular one. But, um, and I understand the premise. There is some truth to it. When it comes to choosing a career, for example, certainly it's good advice to choose something that you love, choose something that you will enjoy. But I'm afraid the world has taken this idea way too far because they push the philosophy that we should just do whatever makes us happy, regardless of, of what's right or wrong. There really is no right or wrong. If it feels good to you, if it makes you happy, then it's right. And so in reality, the, the slogan, if you will, at least for the Christian, should be not do what you love, but do what God loves. Otherwise, we have succumbed to Satan's fiery dart of selfishness. Now, as soon as we master the skill of, of putting others first, then we can be assured that 
Satan will try another approach because he doesn't like it when Christians uh, follow Christ's example and try to do right. And sometimes the next fiery dart that he fires is one of persecution. Jesus promised his disciples that they would be persecuted. In John 15 and 20, he explained, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. For example, we may be victims of of false accusation by those on the outside as they try to cast a a bad reflection not only on us, but but on the church as a whole. And these trials are, are meant to discourage us They're meant to cause us to give up. But we also have to remember Jesus' exhortation uh, to his followers and his beatitudes in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward. That's a shield. That's a shield to hold in front of us and and deflect this uh, fiery dart of of persecution. Sadly, though, not all persecution comes from the outside. And I actually think that one of the devil's most dangerous fiery darts is that of dissension and division within the church, within the body of Christ. As we've already noted, believers are to love one another, submit to one another, prefer one another. But when Satan succeeds in in getting us to sow discord or stir the gossip pot, so to speak, or to fan the rumor mill or to take offense when none was intended or to assume the worst of our brothers and sisters, to cause division of, of any kind, not only do we disable ourselves, in actuality, we're doing Satan's work for him because we're disabling the Lord's church. We need to remember who our enemy is. Who are we fighting? seems that many Christians think that their enemies are the folks from some other political party or the folks from some other church down the street or even that the enemy is someone in their own church who doesn't agree with them. And what do we do with an enemy? We attack them. We wage war. But God tells us that these other folks, they're not our enemies. Now, they may be annoying, but they're not our enemies. Um, In our text, Paul said that we are not contending against flesh and blood. And that doesn't mean that we never have a different opinion than anyone else. It doesn't mean that we may never have to oppose them, especially if they're promoting false doctrine. Paul, you remember, had to oppose the apostle Peter to his face, according to Galatians 2 and verse 11. But the goal is not to defeat them. Our goal is to defeat the enemy. Our goal should be to bring others closer to the truth. Well, we noticed earlier how the the helmet of salvation was an important piece of the armor of God. It protects our minds. And that's because among the the fiery darts that Satan often hurls at us is the mental arrow, if you will, of doubt. It can also take the form of discouragement or fear or guilt. If the devil can get these to to take the place in our mind of joy and peace and contentment and assurance, then he knows certainly that we will be less successful in our Christian walk. If he can plant questions in our mind, such as, if God's so good, why did he let something so bad happen to me? Or is God really listening to my prayers? 
Or why do those who don't serve God seem to be happier and, and better off? Or can God really forgive me for what I've done in the past? When these doubts consume our mind, they cripple us. They prevent us from serving faithfully in the kingdom. And that's not to say that we should never ask questions. But when questions do arise, we have to seek answers from God's Word. And God will help us to, to find those answers. A moment ago, I mentioned the importance of, of having an attitude of, of peace and contentment. And that's true. But another flaming arrow that Satan uses quite often is to convince us to take that to the wrong extreme and instead to be satisfied and to be complacent. As Christians, we must never stop working, stop serving, stop growing. If we ever feel like we've done enough or that we've maxed out our potential for growth, then that's when we're most vulnerable. I read a story from a 2008 edition of Reader's Digest, but it was a mother whose son uh, at that time was in the armed forces and was deployed to Iraq. And so he called home one weekend to say hello, and she asked him if he had to work on Sundays. His reply was, was pretty telling. He said, Mom, we have to work every day. It's a war. Well, remember, we are at war. We're called to be prepared to engage with our enemy every day of the week, not just on Sundays. Even the great apostle Paul said that he didn't consider himself to have apprehended, to have attained perfection, but he pressed on and he reached forward toward that goal. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. We must not become complacent or satisfied in our Christian life. Well, there's one final fiery dart that I'd like to consider with you this morning. Before I disclose it, though, I want to share with you one more inter interesting fact about the, the tactics of war during Paul's day. We've talked about the, the terrifying dangers of, of being hit by a flaming arrow. Certainly, if you were hit by an arrow that was on fire, um, damage would be done. And that's why the Roman shield was, was so important. But the truth is, very often, these flaming arrows, they were not primarily meant to strike the enemy. They were not primarily, primarily meant to kill the enemy. They were meant to distract. When used as a tactical practice designed for maximum disruption, armies would stage a, a surprise assault using these flaming arrows. And as I said, they weren't necessarily aiming for people, but they would aim them at their wagons, their supply tents, their uh, campsite. They would try to set everything on fire. And it was extremely effective. If enough of those arrows hit enough of those targets, the whole brigade of soldiers would be busy trying to extinguish the blaze before it burned up all their gear and their supplies. And then, distracted by the flames, the soldiers became vulnerable by becoming preoccupied, too distracted to deal with whatever follow-up attack their oncoming enemy was planning next. Our enemy wants to distract us. And he's not randomly shooting these arrows of his. He has tailored his strategy. He's studied our tendencies and our habits and our weaknesses. And he has aimed at those areas in particular. 
He fully intends to sidetrack us, to sidetrack our attention by setting any number of fires in our life, our job or our career, our education, our friends or family, our hobbies, our recreation, just general busyness. He wants us to be unfocused on our Christian duties and he wants us to misplace our priorities and he wants us to procrastinate in what we know we ought to be doing according to God's word. Now, many of these distractions are, are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. After all, aren't we supposed to love our family? Aren't we expected to have a job to support them? Of course. But Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6 and 33. And he warned that anyone who loves mother, father, son, or daughter more than him is not worthy of him, Matthew 10, 37. Galatians 6 and verse 10 tells us that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so when we have opportunities to serve and to do good, we must seize upon them. To put it more bluntly, James 4 and 17 warns, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, the devil doesn't want us doing good. And so as we said, he distracts us. And sometimes he distracts us with good things at the expense of what's most important. Remember the lesson that, that Jesus taught Martha in Luke, the 10th chapter? Verse 40 says that she was distracted with much serving. Now, was it wrong for her to serve Jesus and the other guests? Absolutely not. In fact, that was a good way for her to, it was something good that she could do. Problem was, though, as, as Jesus explained to her, that she was worried and troubled about many things. But the one thing that was most important, that good part, the part that Mary had chosen, uh, she still needed. We, got, we have to put first things first. Well, in closing, I, I may not know what fiery darts Satan is hurling at you. You may not know what fiery darts Satan is hurling at me. We don't always know what others are battling. Certainly we should pray for one another, as Paul closed our text uh, by pointing out. Those Roman shields, as we pointed out, they were meant to work together, to fight as a unit and protect one another. That's why Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 urges us to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. We need to uh, work together in this fight against Satan. We need to have each other's backs. We need to fight as one. And certainly most of all, we need the Lord. Because only with His help can we overcome these fiery darts of the wicked one. I'll leave you with one final verse. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3. It promises, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one.